interaction we have shapes us as humans. So like right now we're changing each other just by having this conversation. Listeners are hearing what we're talking about and it's changing certain things in their mind. Mm. This is happening all the time. And so we have to view our technology as having that kind of effect. Every relationship changes us, but if we have a relationship with technology that happens to be near our brain more than anything else, that has significant effects on how we think and how we act. Welcome to Freedom Matters, where we explore the intersection of technology, productivity, and digital well-being. I'm your host, Georgie Powell, and each episode we'll be talking to experts in productivity and digital wellness. We'll be sharing their experiences on how to take back control of technology. We hope you leave feeling inspired, so let's get to it. This week, we welcome Randima Fernando. Randy works at the intersection of technology, mindfulness and social impact, helping to find ethical solutions to hard problems. He is a co-founder of Centre for Humane Technology, a non-profit whose mission is to align technology with humanity's best interests. The Centre for Humane Tech was featured in the Emmy-winning film The Social Dilemma, which has been seen by over 100 million people globally. This episode is the first in our new series on the tools that we use, where we discuss how technology mediates our lived experiences. In this wide-ranging conversation, we delve into some of the systemic issues of the technology industry today, which are now shaping the way that we exist. We discuss how business incentives, not human interests, govern design, how no tools are created neutral, and why we all, users and designers alike, need to understand what thriving means to us so that we can live these values eyes wide open in the tools that we create and use. Randy, thank you so much for coming and joining us today on the Freedom Matters podcast. It really is a privilege to speak with you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, So I'd love to start at the beginning and can you just explain to me and to the listeners why you thought it was really important to found the Centre for Humane Technology? We saw all of these issues coming up around technology and the trends in technology and this idea of the attention economy starting to become more clear and then the issues that were happening with how a persuasive technology, right, technology that interacts with the mind. So social media being the top thing there, right, how these persuasive technologies were interacting with our minds and causing problems at every level, right, from addiction to depression, but also including polarization and the breakdown of sense-making, like how we make sense of the world, affecting how we make choices, the values that we have, what we think is important, what our children think are important. So all of these issues. And we wanted to basically have an organization that was dedicated to fighting these problems, but from this kind of systemic lens, which is really core to our work. I was interested. Since founding the Centre for Humane Technology, How have the issues that they've been addressing changed? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot has changed, thankfully. Public awareness has grown incredibly. And a big piece of that was the social dilemma, right? This film that Mm -hmm. was watched by over, we estimated 100 million people worldwide, thanks to Netflix and the distribution there, right? So you end up with a lot more awareness of the issues and people just, it becomes safe to talk about it, whoever you are. And that has all kinds of incredible downstream effects. So when culture understands something, 
it becomes safe to talk about it at your at your school. Whether you're a teen, you can talk about it with other teens. If you're a parent, you can talk about it with other parents. But suddenly, policymakers, it's good for policymakers to take action because they know that a large number of citizens are behind them on the action. Mm. Same thing with insiders at technology companies. They can speak out because they're also aware that the public is behind them, that there's a large movement that understands the issues. And it can catalyze some downstream changes. So I think there's been a lot of work and a lot of progress on the problem side and understanding the problem. And now it's time to talk a little more about the solution side. People are more interested in, okay, what can we do? What does that look like? Um, it turns out it's a complex problem, which is why solutions don't move forward so easily. Mm. But we can talk about some of that today as well. And I'm glad that you think there's already kind of positive change happening. I worry that even though there's increased awareness, the technology that we're using is becoming even more persuasive and compelling at the same time. And so even though you can be very aware of, say, for example, how oh, yeah. how addictive this technology is, it's actually increasingly difficult to step away from it. No, I agree with you. I think this is how we see it as well. Because technology advances at this exponential rate, right? Like mm. actually doubling in performance roughly every 18 months. And when yeah. we have that powering our AI and powering the persuasive technologies in particular, you can make a fair argument that they are the most dangerous class of technology because they're the closest to your mind. They affect how you think. They affect how you make decisions. They affect how you understand what's true, how you put the information around you together to make decisions. Mm. And by the way, that is the foundation of democracy. The idea that citizens will gather information, synthesize that, and then make decisions in terms of actions, voting in particular, that reflects a good understanding of the issues. And then they vote for what's best for them and their communities and hopefully the country. That all starts to break down when other people are manipulating the ability to make sense of the world and to make choices. So this is why Persuasive technology has been a big focal point for us because it's this foundation. It affects yeah. the foundation of the functioning of society as a whole. Yeah. And as you say, if it's doubling in improvement and function every 18 months, we have to ask the question, have I, in the last year and a half, have I doubled my ability to be able to protect my ability to focus? And you haven't. Absolutely yeah, exactly. not. <laughs> I work right. in this That's space right. like an, an absolutely not. You say there's increasing evidence of the harms that technology is delivering against us and I certainly agree especially anecdotally and I think people are a lot more self-aware of the harm but from a research perspective I'm still struggling to see conclusive evidence where there isn't also counter research to say that actually technology isn't harming us and I still feel like we're fighting against this yeah. quite a strong rhetoric to say we're really overreacting we're over dramatizing this is luddite talk which has existed with every kind of new wave of technology that's ever been in the past how are you right. finding that i think one of the challenges that research has in particular for this problem is that they don't have the data right they don't mm -hmm. they, they don't have access to all the platforms know everything that's going on and they could do all this analysis for us but of course it's not incentivized for them to do that and so there's this struggle that researchers always have with getting access. So one of the really helpful forms of regulation that can be passed is more transparency, allowing researchers to look at these data sets and analyze them. But I think there's still enough evidence of like harms to children, developmental harms, forms of addiction, 
depression, narcissism, discrimination, all of these things are showing up, cyberbullying, the effects of cyberbullying. Every interaction we have shapes us as humans. So like right now we're changing each other just by having this conversation. Listeners are hearing what we're talking about and it's changing certain things in their mind. Mm -hmm. This is happening all the time. And so we have to view our technology as having that kind of effect. Every relationship changes us. But if we have a relationship with technology that happens to be near our brain more than anything else, that has significant effects on how we think and how we act. There's an interesting statistic about how many hours teens, for example, are using daily average entertainment screen use. Right now, for boys, it's nine hours and 16 minutes. And for girls, it's eight hours and two minutes. And that's data from 2021. So I think we should be very concerned about when we have that kind of relationship with technology. And adults are not much different, right? All of us are on these devices for many hours of the day. And so we have to view it as um, these interactions, especially at these long durations, are affecting our minds. They're changing us in ways that we don't always understand. And so with children, for example, they pick up all of the rules of their environment naturally. So they look around and they say, okay, attention is really important. Every child knows, right? Attention, you want attention, right? They, they knew that long before social media, long they before don't. television, right? <laughs> Everyone knows that from when they're very young. It's natural. But they also pick up how to get attention, right? Every child figures this out. And when they're on these platforms and they can notice that there's this currency of likes and comments and shares and that is the fundamental currency of how attention works. Of course, that's going to affect their development. It's going to affect their values, as an example. One of the things that's really important to understand is that when we interact with technology, the shaping process, the shaping of our minds, this interaction, is not just happening in the time that we're using the technology, right? The effects of that continue after. And I think this is one of the really, it's very obvious, but one of the common kind of misconceptions that I think sometimes tech companies have when they're designing products is they, they think about a session where yeah. a user is using a product and something happens, right? The user wants to do something and then they finish and then they leave. But for example, when we watch 15 second videos again and again on TikTok, if a kid is doing that in particular, but even adults, your attention is getting trained in a certain way. Mm. And this attention is actually the fundamental currency of doing anything in this world. And so mm. we have to view it that way and say, okay, and then when the session ends, your mind is still conditioned to understand information and to process information in these tiny 15-second chunks. And you'll find the effect because when you try to do something important next, you try to get back to your work or maybe it's your homework, or maybe it's reading something, you can't sustain your attention the way that you could before. So I think that's just a really concrete example of how these effects happen and how they have downstream consequences beyond the actual time of the interaction. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw a report that came out recently that was showing that teenagers are actually having trouble concentrating on YouTube videos now. Of a 10 minute, long. 10 minute long YouTube video <laughs> is too long. Like goodness knows, right. there's no hope for a movie. You know, we, as you say, we see this in real life, not just affecting how we interact offline, but also in our online experiences. They get yes. changed over time, too. That's right. 
And I'll just add one more thing, which is to have to solve problems, right? If you have real problems in the world, as we do, we have inequity, we have the climate crisis, we have I mean, just so many problems that are out there. War, right? And all of these are complex. They require sustained attention and nuanced conversation. The ability to take in information, listen to someone's viewpoint, understand, reflect on that. And this takes time. And this takes mm. words and space. So when Twitter came out, I was pretty concerned because the idea of having such a small number of characters to express information, to express ideas, leads to this natural mimification of everything. Mm. And you boil down complexity, and we all learn to do that, and only the most mimified ideas succeed. Mm. And I think this is this is all dangerous. Again, it's this constant training process, right, that now we've all been through for more than 10 years. And when you think about the effects of that, even if you fix other aspects of social media or persuasive technology, this training stays behind. Yeah. But our brains are malleable. We can do it. We spoke with Krista Tippett recently, and I think one of the things she said really lasted with me was that not only is everything being distilled down to 100 characters, how many characters mm -hmm. it all is, it's this, this misperception that access to so much more information can give us all the answers, when actually sometimes the best way to solve complex challenges in the world is to accept that there will be questions that are unanswered and that we have to be able to sit with them mull over them give them space it goes far beyond the way that we interact with technology and in the moment but that, that affects how we exist as humans and is really important there's actually a, a very important related issue to that which is this idea of delayed gratification when we are used to getting information or answers everything immediately and we lose patience we become very impatient we've all become more impatient right and then that i think that relates at a deeper level because Delayed gratification, the reason it correlates so much with success, this you may have heard about the marshmallow experiment, this kind yeah. of famous experiment where basically children who are able to delay gratification and say, I'm going to take two marshmallows later versus one marshmallow, that's the super short version of that, um, that correlated with a number of successful outcomes. They were happier, they had better jobs, I can't, there's a long list of things, and I would say the reason for that is that life doesn't tend to go the way we want a lot of the time. So how do we respond to that is very important. But if we're in this training program for whatever, nine hours, eight hours a day, basically outside of our job or school, we're in this training program that is an instant gratification, hypernormal stimulation. That is not what we are biologically evolved to to handle. We're just being trained in a way that doesn't equip us very well to handle the realities of life when they come. So that's another deeper issue that's also happening through all of this. We could go on and it does get <laughs> it does get quite <laughs> concerning. I think how do you balance it though with the fact that for so many young people, for instance, we talk about young people quite a lot here and how their brains, how all of our brains are being changed, but you know, how they've managed to find identity with connecting with other people who are like there for lots of people they're actually being able to communicate in new ways which are really positive for them that so much of social interaction now does happen online how do we marry the two one thing i would do is separate out communications technology like video conferencing or video chat or even text type chats from the actual 
platforms and the scrolls, right? The long feed of stuff that bounces your mind from one item to the next item. There's a big difference there. And of course, the companies tend to want to conflate those, right? That's one of the ways you defend yourself. If you're one of the companies, you say, hey, but it's so great for connecting people. People talk to each other on our platform all the time. And that is true. And that is valuable. The trap is that most of the communications technologies also try to get you back into the rest of the platform as part of the communication experience or interaction. Mm. And that's when there's trouble, right? Because when we are communicating on video, say we're on a call together, there's a lot of goodness here, right? We're tapping into our natural human ability. We can be more candid with each other. We can be more authentic. Now, contrast that to an experience online where you're performing in front of all these other people. It's very difficult, right? You start to have different behaviors. A lot of times you're using text only to communicate ideas. So inflections can't be conveyed easily. There are no facial expressions to help you. And therefore, you get a lot of misinterpretation. And then when you start to have these kinds of arguments or debates, maybe even constructive, when you have so many people watching and commenting without full context or knowing you or knowing me, it starts to go off the cliff very quickly. And then it becomes very hard because you're performing in front of other people Ideally, you'd want to take that conversation offline and continue it a private, safer place if there's an argument. But instead, it becomes like a gladiator situation where gladiators are going at it and everyone's watching and there's this kind of vociferous cheering. That's not the kind of world that we want to have. Yeah. Fascinating. It's fascinating that you see such a clear distinction as well between sort of communication channels and social media channels. And as you say, the tools have elements of both and that's where it gets really muddy. But if you take something that you think is pure communication, I think still that in itself can also be overwhelming. There's still infinite opportunities to have all those conversations when I don't actually have infinite time to have all those conversations. And basically you feel guilty all the time for not getting back to all the people that you really should get back to. This is also true. Yes. I think that speaks to a different point, which is, I think for all of us, I would encourage everyone to just stop for a moment and think What is thriving to you? What does it mean? And we could maybe just pause for a few seconds and just reflect on it. What does that even mean? Because that is the sort of the guiding star for us to figure out. And we sometimes forget that, right? You have to start with that principle. And thriving folds in a lot of different pieces, but it also, it folds in an understanding of our own human nature. So in the example you gave, it means understanding that we can only maintain a certain number of relationships at a time. We can't have them all. We can't go deep with everyone. And so we have to choose where we want to spend our time and our attention. Mm. And this idea of protecting attention in particular, which is very close to, to, to the heart for freedom, this idea of protecting our attention and intentions is the most important thing because this is a building block of how we make decisions, how we set our agenda, and how ultimately how we get to thrive. So what other questions should people think about when they think about what does thriving mean for me? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about it. We want to live by our values, but to do that, we have to understand what thriving is. 
And this is also, I know some of the people listening are going to be technologists. And I think technologists in particular need to understand the concept of thriving very deeply because the reason we have these technologies is because they help us to thrive. So we have to know what it means. And I think a lot of times we can start by just eliminating some of the common misperceptions about thriving. So it's not an end goal. It's not something you get to. When you accomplish that task, you're done. It's not something that's easy to put into metrics and maximize and achieve. It's not something that you deliver. It's not something that app that an app gives you. It's not distraction, right? This is, I think, very important. We need genuine, spacious rest. But this idea of hyperstimulation that actually locks us into a kind of trance and gets us to be overwhelmed, thriving also isn't the absence of pain or loss. Thriving is about how we respond to those things. It's about how we can be learning, how can we be resilient, and how can we find the ways to respond skillfully when things happen. So I think I just want to put those out there because I think there's a lot of myths out there that tech companies tap into. We have this course called Foundations of Humane Technology, and we have a whole module on thriving because this is at the heart of it. And if you don't get it, you build the wrong tech. And in addition to building the wrong tech, you tell yourself a wrong story about how your tech is helpful. So this is happening all the time at all the major platforms. So let's talk about what is thriving. I think it is really this relationship between pleasure and pain and meaning and how we respond, being aware of what is happening in your body, in your mind, and how you're responding to each moment. Just developing that awareness automatically helps you to thrive better Mm -hmm. because you get out of the kinds of stories, the narratives that cause us most of our suffering. We tell ourselves a story and we hold on to that story and then we run into trouble. A lot of times we, we do well when we have gratitude in our lives, when we have creative expression, when we're learning things. So why are so many technology products not helping us to thrive. So examples, right, creativity. TikTok is all about creativity. YouTube is all about creativity and learning. So why aren't they great exemplars of thriving? In small doses, they can be. YouTube in particular, you can learn a lot on YouTube. It's got the right format. It doesn't have the right interface to guide you to make decisions that would be consistent with your own thriving. Mm -hmm. But the the content exists on YouTube. Yeah. The problem is dosage and the interface. It, so in, in TikTok's case, the dosage problem, I think, is a huge problem where creativity in certain doses is good, right, in, in smaller doses. And in larger doses, it can also be great if it's something like a long-form, slow-flow state kind of thing. But short videos that are competing for attention is pretty much the opposite of what would be useful for people. In YouTube, the home screen is basically looking at all the things that you've looked at recently and finding very engaging versions of those. And instead, you could imagine something where it asked you what you're here to do. Are you here to be for a little bit of downtime? Okay, 15 minutes of downtime. I want to be entertained. I want to laugh. I want to learn. And You could choose. You could express what it is that's bringing you here right now. And then it could give you a playlist that matches that. For example, if you wanted to learn the guitar, 
you could watch something about learning the guitar and then it could even help you to say, okay, like, where can I get a guitar? Or where's a local group? Where's a local teacher who I can sign up with? But most of the time, the incentive of the platforms is not aligned with getting you off of the platforms, which is where most thriving happens, is off of the platforms, because their business models are largely built on time on site and advertising. So these are the kinds of conflicts of interest that come up. I just want to put an asterisk here for um, the importance of looking at incentives. For everyone who wants to understand technology better, understand where the incentives are, like how the companies make money. And then once you understand that, you can see what their agenda is after all the rhetoric, right? The rhetoric doesn't matter. The incentive alignment reveals the underlying motivation for the behavior. Yeah. And for most of them, it is exactly to your point. It is simply attention that they can monetize through advertising and obviously through data collection as well. Yeah. I can add just a few more quick things on thriving. I think balance and respecting the flows of life is really important, right? Accepting your current Mm -hmm. situation. All the major religions have a path to help you accept what has happened in your life, the good and the bad. This is not to say you don't take action to change it, but in the moment, This moment right now is exactly how it is, and it can't be any other way. The sooner we understand that, the suffering comes from that resistance. So if Mm -hmm. we can reduce that, and then we can say, okay, but this can't be sustained. What do I do next? And then I take action. That's a wiser way to be than generating a lot of narrative around the current situation and why me and why does it have to be this way? And these kinds of strong narratives generally lead to more suffering. And so I think technology needs to help us see that. Other things, care and kindness, really important. So that comes to understanding the conditions of other people. Why are they doing what they do? Can we hold a nuanced view for why someone might be posting something that we disagree with? What do they believe? We have to provide channels for people to have more humane conversations with each other out of the gladiator realm, right? Nurturing quality relationships, depth over breath. I just want to come back to this point on acceptance and thriving. I've been thinking about this a lot recently as well, especially with the rising cost of living and the financial pressure that everyone's experiencing is how those eight or nine hours a day that you're talking about are also just this porthole into a life of other things that people might aspire to want to have that we can't have. And never before have we been so saturated with advertising or lifestyles to admire or look up to, which which are totally unobtainable. The shift in values, right? I think Mm. this is a very important thing to add to more of the rubrics is to say, how is our product affecting the values of users? Now, not only is it hard to address in terms of their business models, but it also is a hard one to evaluate. But it is happening all the time. And I think the idea of Getting confused about what's important and what thriving is, these are really big issues that social media is causing at scale, like at a very large scale. And it doesn't get talked about that much because it doesn't count as like extremism or hate speech. It's not a form of discrimination. It's not anything. It seems so harmless. It's like, oh, it's just people sharing their successes with each other. And this Mm. happens even on a platform like LinkedIn, which doesn't get talked about that much. But I just want to give a few examples from all the platforms. But if you go on LinkedIn, and I'm sure many people will be familiar with this, you end up in this crazy competition for like 
humble brags. That's what it is. And you just end up with this. I'm so honored to share that I got accepted to do this and I'm on this panel or I'm giving this podcast or whatever. And you can't help comparing. People are going to compare. And that, again, doesn't lead to the best of us. I think this is part of the challenge is we're not starting from first principles to understand what it is that would bring out the best in humans and in our communities and how we collaborate. We're just letting these algorithms run society. And I don't think it takes us to a good place. Yeah. And they're not only changing our values, not just when we're using the technology, but then also throughout our lives as a consequence. They're taking the time that we could be using to work out what our values even are in the first place. Life is busy enough as it is. I think it's something you have to be quite disciplined to do, but particularly disciplined when there are so many delightful distractions. Yes, I think that's a huge part of the challenge. It's like quality of attention and time to reflect. It's That's why I think most people who've thought deeply about this, they mostly don't use social media because it's not really helpful. They can see clearly. Another thing I would suggest to listeners is just Try to watch your mind as you, I think Facebook is a good example, and so is Twitter, so is TikTok. As you scroll through these feeds, what is happening in your mind? And you're jumping from one topic to the next topic, and actually it can start to feel uncomfortable. I value my attention a lot, so when it gets sliced up, I'm sensitive to that. I don't like that because I think it's the fundamental currency of everything, so I want that to be as clean as possible. But if you start paying attention to that as you use the products, you'll start to see what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. And then once you become sensitive to that, I think that also helps you to stay away from some of the patterns because you realize how this valuable resource of yours is being sliced into pieces. And how rubbish is making you feel. And sold. (laughs) And sold sold for profit. That's right. I love this. So I think that's given us a lot of really practical tips about how to think about thriving. I just want to come back again to the tools because this is a series about the tools that we use. And another module of the course is to look at how the tools that we use are not neutral. And we're led to believe they are. We're led to believe it's just tech. It's neutral. It's there to help us. It's to make our life faster, more efficient, better, connected, entertained, whatever brilliant thing it might be doing. How can we start to understand better that these tools are not neutral? And then how can we move tools to a place where they are neutral, if not even better, helping us thrive? So I define this a little bit differently. I'd say actually nothing is neutral. Everything is conditioned. So we talked earlier about how every interaction changes us. And so when you look at you as a human, or let's say you're a technologist and you're designing a product, you are the product of all of these interactions and relationships and conditions coming together, right? From your parents, Mm. to your friends, your teachers, siblings, the colleagues you have right now, things you read, all of this input comes into your brain. And so already that's produced the way you think about the world, certain set of thoughts and biases. We're inclined already. And so when we build a product, implicitly, there is a definition of thriving and some kind of values that are baked into that product when we build it. And that's not a neutral set. That's a conditioned set based on all of those things I just Mm -hmm. named. Mm -hmm. And so when we bake those values in, they are reflected in the product. They're reflected in a number of things. First of all, the mission statement that we choose, it's reflected in the user interface. It's reflected in the menu. So 
anytime yeah. there's a menu, something's first and something's last. And there are many other options that aren't even on the menu. So all of this is non-neutral, right? So that's one thing. But also, I think it's important to understand how technology, when it's released into society, you drop it into this water. But the water also has a certain flavor to it, especially when you have technologies that are driven by learning algorithms, like artificial intelligence. It learns based on data sets. And so the data sets that are around influence the shaping of the product. So now it's much more complex. Now we have these learning algorithms. And so the product itself changes, its behavior changes based on society and the other humans around it. Mm -hmm. And now all of these humans are using the product. So the humans themselves are changed by the product. And then some of those humans are people who design the product. And so you end up in this cycle. So you can see how incredibly non-neutral the products are. So the idea of abdicating responsibility by saying, oh, we just built a neutral platform. There is no such thing. If we define, let's say, neutrality by saying, look, anyone can just post anything. We're just calling it neutral in that sense, which is another off, a definition that's often used. That in itself also is an expression of values because you're saying, you're understanding or not understanding that a platform like that will automatically tilt by itself because of human nature, right? People will automatically have this race for attention. If you say, yeah. hey, anyone can post anything, you start to have certain people who get more attention. Yeah, We have certain cognitive biases. We want to be included in our groups. This is wired into us. We don't want to be left out. And so automatically, there's going to be the rise of certain types of influencers, certain types of speech, more exaggerated, more divisive, more emotional speech. So that can be very inspiring. It can be very hateful. It can be very exaggerated. Those types of speech are going to be the ones that rise up mm. in these systems. Right? So all of these things, these aren't neutral effects. Right. And so we have to understand that when whatever we produce is going to have a set of trade-offs. And what we're saying as a technology builder is that we are centering certain values. We're making a, a deliberate choice to center certain values when we build the product. Another way of saying this, this is a really important concept, right, of when we have technology, it produces unintended consequences. It produces consequences that are not paid for by the technology companies. So, for example, this have pollution is the classic example of an externality, right? These are called externalities, where we take something that the company produces but it's not accounted for in the economic system. And someone else has to pay for it. It's external to the company. Obviously, these days, we're aware of pollution. And so we have ways of folding in some of those costs into the balance sheets of companies. With social media, a lot of these externalities are still new. So it's hard to get them folded back into the balance sheets. We're always going to have some externalities. But the values that we choose allow us to price some of those externalities back in because we say certain values are important to us and we're going to factor that in. And this is part of why it's really important to be clear on what our values are. So I'm going to take a really practical example here now. So I used to work for YouTube. One of the reasons I went to work for YouTube is because at the time, back in 2011, I thought it was really important to have platforms where content was democratised. And so for yes. me, that was a value driver that led me to that platform. I didn't at that time 
have the mindset to be able to ask questions about what the unintended consequences of a platform like that might be. And I, to be honest, I think at the time with YouTube, the platform didn't know either. We hadn't, they hadn't, we hadn't thought oh, of, no. of which way it could tip or would tip. And it ended up, I think one of the things people don't talk about much is the fact that it ended up as a place where people just sit and watch other people gaming. So right. first of all, when you don't know which way it's going to tip, how do you preempt? Yes. How do you understand the other values that are going to be impacted by a product before it's really taken its form? And then from that, when even when there's uncertainty, or even if you do know, how can we still do anything? Because I can see how we also would be all shocked into this sort of state of inertia because there are negative externalities which happen with everything. They're always costs, right. right? So how do we decide which trade-offs we are willing to make? And then how do we still move forward? This is very important. A few things come to mind. One is, again, back to centering values because that gives you the clarity to say, Here's what we're going to be really looking out for. Now, that said, as you said, there are many externalities that we're not aware of. So you have to build systems that give you feedback loops into the environment that you're putting things. User feedback, and especially with marginalized communities, getting feedback from there directly, ideally having them involved in some part of the process. But building those loops is, I think, one of the often neglected areas. Mm -hmm. Another helpful concept is the idea of anti-KPIs. So we have these things called KPIs, key performance indicators. And normally companies use that. It's Typically, it's a measure that as it goes up, you're succeeding. So typical examples would be time on site, number of active users per month or something like that. But you could also have anti-KPIs, which are like when that measure goes up, you're actually doing badly. Something bad is happening. So you could say number of people complaining of addiction, for example. There are rubrics that you can use to anticipate. You can do what we call red teaming, which is before you put the product out, you spend some time thinking about the malicious scenarios that could happen. So some are malicious, some are just unintended, but mm -hmm. what could go wrong? So there's a few scenarios. One is how could people take advantage of this product in a harmful way, mm -hmm. say to manipulate elections is a common way that social media goes wrong. Or... What could just happen if we let this thing run? Like, how could this unfold? And spending time to do that and saying, okay, what are the first order effects? What are the second order effects? Yeah. Uh, what is the scale of the people affected? Like, how many people could be affected? In what ways could they be affected? Just being really interested in it. I mentioned uh, incentives earlier. And I think this idea of incentives is really important. So incentivizing your teams to actually... Bonuses aren't just KPIs. Bonuses are also related to anti-KPIs, right? Keeping those down. I think that's another example where there should be an incentive to pointing out a negative externality. And this is a very common, almost none of the companies have no. good, in, good structures for rewarding Which someone who brings yeah. <laughs> up a harm. There's not safety to bring up, or often you hear the story that the harms were brought up repeatedly. This is like a textbook thing. The harms were brought up repeatedly to management, but were routinely ignored. And then eventually you get whistleblowing to compensate because there's no other way to make those externalities internal. Yeah. And when you have whistleblowing and eventually there's like regulation or penalties or litigation, those are ways that those external costs come back onto the company's balance sheet. They come as penalties. Yeah. And so you have to have these kinds of systems to bring them in. The problem is setting those up to match the scale of advancement that the companies have. 
Yeah. And lobbyists that they have. It's a tough. It really is. And from a regulatory perspective and a fines perspective, the ones we've seen so far are dripping the ocean compared to the kind of the economics of these companies. And it, it's, it always ends up at this point in the conversation where it just comes down to the fact that until the business models of these companies change and the kind of the sustainable value-driven yes. outcomes of the businesses are actually what shareholders are investing in. It is difficult for the executives to say, we are going to reward those anti-KPIs and the constant scanning that needs to happen to make sustainable products. That's right. And this is why you have to have all of this kind of combination of platform changes, internal governance, external regulation, business model changes, economic system like goals, right? What does the economic system reward? And ultimately, culture and paradigm, like what do we think? Yeah. Yeah. An overall cultural understanding of what a good product is and what a good product isn't Mm. helps all of the other things to happen. It's a systemic thing, right? You can't think of it as one, like you can't just fix one segment. Yeah. But when people understand what a good product is, and then there's enough pressure. So this is why like a, a film that reaches a lot of people is an example of a move that actually creates some pressure. And another example is when Google launched their well-being product and Apple launched their time spent product. And there's a little bit of a race to do something positive. But of course, a lot of that can be co-opted, right? And you end up putting these kinds of small protections that don't do nearly enough in front of these systems that do large amounts of harm. Because what the companies don't want to do is to change their fundamental operating model. They don't want to touch that. They want to do anything else on the outside that they can do. So they're really happy to put, hey, you're all up to date now, as an example, and say, okay, this helps people to stop scrolling infinitely, which is helpful. But it doesn't stop the fact that still they're driven by advertising. They're driven by time on site. Yeah. And And when we talk about the tools that we use, from the moment you take a phone out of a box... It's not yes. neutral. It's yes. already preloaded. Our experience of, of everything right. is That's guided right. from that moment. And, and just the fact that these, even the fact that the devices are built for consumption rather than creation in themselves is, is really significant. So I think often there's a lot of focus on the apps we use and the platforms that we use, but not actually enough emphasis on the fact that the devices themselves are already very much curating our existence. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it's important for everyone to be aware. I hope after today's discussion, definitely, it's just so clear about the non-neutrality. It's everywhere. It's not just in technology, but When you're aware of that, I think it makes you at least more able to protect yourself and act more skillfully. Fantastic. Randy, I'm going to leave it there. I would love to speak to you at a dinner party for hours. Yeah, this was really (laughs) fun. But thank you so much for your time today. You've been an absolutely fantastic guest for the Freedom Matters podcast. We really are so grateful to have you. Awesome. I'm so grateful to be here. I wanted to mention for people who are interested, our podcast called Your Undivided Attention might be super interesting. It's just we cover a lot of different topics related to technology, but also the impacts, right, on national security, on the mind, mental health, children. If you're interested in youth and you're worried about how to educate more youth on this, we have a thing called the Youth Toolkit. So that's at humanetech.com slash youth. Mm-hmm. The podcast is at humanetech.com slash podcast. And the course that I mentioned is at humanetech.com slash course. They're all easy to remember. <laughs> Check them out. And I hope they'll be of service to all of you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Freedom Matters. 
If you like what you hear, then subscribe on your favorite platform. And until next time, we wish you happy, healthy and productive days.